This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. Hello, and welcome to another World of UX podcast. This is your host, Darren Hood. Thanks, everyone, for taking the time to join us on today. And a special welcome to those of you who are joining us for the first time. We are returning to the Sinister series. However, we're going to look at it. There's sort of a, an interlude here is what we're going to get into on tonight. I mentioned recently that when we return to the series, we we're going to be presenting some standalone topics. And there's two segments that will that will make up that part of the of the series. However, before we even get into that, there are just some other things that that have crossed my mind, some other things that I think that would really be great to share. We're really trying to paint pictures of the discipline, accurate pictures, pictures that are not popular, pictures that a lot of people really don't want to hear us talk about. But then again, a lot of people are expressing a lot of gratitude for the fact that we're sharing this information because it's it's not something that a lot of people are willing to share but if you know it, it gives you an advantage. If you know the things that I'm sharing with you in this series, you won't be blindsided when you experience it. And so when you're not blindsided, you're in a better position to respond strategically. You're going to be in a better position from a psychological safety perspective because there's nothing worse than being blindsided. There's nothing worse that experiencing something that you didn't know existed, there's some, there's nothing worse than experiencing something that you didn't think was possible. When those things happen, you do not have a recourse, you do not have a, a proper mindset, and you end up being in a, a reaction state of mind or reactive state of mind instead of a proactive state of mind. When you hear about these things, you can start to give it some thought. When you hear about these things, you're in a better position to, because there's always going to be a response, right? You're, you're, you're going to be in a better position to respond and then do something that is going to be more constructive and more practical instead of being in a position where you're at a complete disadvantage and you, you didn't know what to do. You, at least you can, you can start to, to formulate some proper responses. And so these things are critical. It, it, are these things fun? No, it's not fun talking about it. But I've seen these things. I talk to people who've experienced these things all the time. And a lot of people who weren't considering them, but in hearing about them, it put them in a position where they're they're more likely to succeed. And that's what we desire for, for everybody today that folks would be in a position to succeed. So, I mean, nobody wants to get a flat tire, but you're better off being in a position where you're thinking through what to do should you get a flat tire. Nobody wants to get sick, but you're in a a better position when you consider the types of things that could happen should you get sick and then being in a position to respond appropriately if that type of thing occurs. I mean, we don't like to think about insurance. We have insurance. Insurance is a necessary evil. It's a type of thing 
that you really don't want to have to experience the things that require you to tap into the associated insurance policy, but you sure are happy that you had it when certain things happen because you're in a better position to respond and to to do the things that are a necessity should the things that call for the insurance occur. So I don't apologize for having to talk about things like this. I'm starting to find more and more people who are developing courage to talk about such things. Very thankful for those folks. They understand the reality of it. And and for them, it was same way it was for me. You, you don't want to experience it, but the, the fact of the matter is that many of us have. And, and so you have people who have experienced these things and we're willing to help others to be in a position to succeed so they don't get caught off guard. Then there's a whole ton of people. I've talked about this before. There's a lot of cowards in UX today who don't want to say anything, won't say anything. And those are the same kind of people who want me to be quiet. But if you talk to them in private, they'll tell you. Some of them even say, I'm glad you're talking about this stuff, but they're not going to say anything. And, and, and let me define two areas of cowardice. There are some people who are afraid it's just not their thing to speak up. I'm not criticizing those people. Um, they, they, they say, I'm glad you're talking about it. This is so important. I really can't do it. I can't bring myself to do that. I'm not really cracking down on those people. I'm cracking down on the people who refuse to say it. They can. They just simply won't. And, and the bottom line is those of us that are speaking up, we speak up because we care. It is really a hateful thing to to be silent when you could take a stand about something. So I just I'm going to say that today and I'm not going to apologize for that either. Today's segment of the Sinister series doesn't have a number. I'm not going to be presenting things during this segment. Uh, we I mean we ended up last time on number 62 that's the last one that we covered we're going to get into number 63 next time but what we want to talk about today has to do with it it really i guess we could give it a, a number we could call it number 63 technically and we want to talk about the free falling of ux and this is going to be a relatively short episode in comparison to some of the other ones And I just want to take you on a quick journey. So go back with me to 1995. And I'm going back to 1995 because that's when I started. I didn't used to give myself credit for doing the work in 95. But when I look back, you know, I actually was. So other people are lying about their their history and the discipline. I was actually doing the work. So, yeah, I'm, I'm claiming that. I was doing it. And so I'm not going to say I wasn't doing it in 95. I wasn't doing it full time. Um, so I was part-timing, I was doing it as part of my day job. I was doing what we now call UX work in my freelance career that had just launched in 95. So I'm taking my journey. I'm taking this journey back to 95. I can't talk about 1992. I can't talk about 1998 like some other people can, because I wasn't doing any of this kind of work at all, not even remotely. So we won't take any credit for anything that we did back then. 
And again, my journey begins then. So that's where we'll begin this little journey. So come along with me. In 1995, the discipline that we now know as UX was not free-falling. I was just getting involved in the discipline. You've heard the story before. I started doing some work for free, for a, a nonprofit organization, doing my freelance work for a nonprofit organization who needed some help as people were rushing to get on the internet. And I was always the guy that somebody came to when something tech oriented came into play. And so it happened again. And I was in the right place at the right time. They needed some help. I stepped forward and I did things that we now, I mean, I didn't use the terminology and, but I did things that we now call by certain terms. I looked at the information architecture. I evaluated cognitive load. I conducted UX research, even though it was very guerrilla oriented, doing guerrilla research at that time. But it was what we now refer to as one of the elements associated with what we call UX research. But I was also observant. While I was learning, I was doing, and then I was watching. And as I was watching, I noticed that everything, and, and I'm saying this in retrospective or from a perspective of, of, uh, of a retrospective as well. So I'm looking at these things, I'm seeing things, and I'm seeing things take shape. And I'm getting books, I'm starting to dive into books, I'm going to websites, I'm trying to study this thing that I've been exposed to. I didn't even know what to call it when I first got started, and, and certainly didn't call it UX, and I didn't know anything about Jacob Nielsen at the time. I should say Don Norman. I didn't know anything about Don Norman at the time. I learned about Jacob Nielsen a few years later. I did buy his usability engineering book relatively early, but as I take a look at the discipline back then and learning different things and tapping into certain things and trying to, unbeknownst to me, lay a foundation for where I was going to be today or where I am today, everything was stable. Uh, when I talk to people who were doing the work way back then, people will constantly say that they were feeling their way around. And, and I agree. I think a lot of us that were doing the work back then, we were trying to understand what was going on. We were making discoveries, things of that nature, but there was no free falling. There was nothing crazy going on. There weren't people who were falsifying their way around the discipline. There were not people who were trying to redefine things. A lot of what was happening was discovery, not just for me, but for a lot of other people as well. Now let's go forward five years. 2000, I'm a little bit further along in my UX journey, and I'm still making more discoveries, and by now I'm creating the the first internet site for the for the company that I was working for, for the HR department, and I'm creating applications using, here's a blast from the past, Microsoft Access. How about that? Um, creating applications for the HR department using Access, using UX principles as I designed these, which for all intents and purposes were basically software applications. They were just, they just had Microsoft Access as their base. So pretty interesting stuff. But as I look around and I'm studying 
I have more books. I'm starting to gain more confidence. I'm, I'm starting to not just feel my way around, but I'm starting to navigate what's going on with regard to this thing that we now call UX. And But as I look back, no free falling. 2005, let's go forward five more years. This is the year that for Darren Hood, this is the year that I started doing UX as a full-time job. My first title was information architect, but we were doing heuristics. We were already starting to do the usability evaluation, the usability audits. We're starting to do more research. We're starting to to really, of course, I mean, information architect was my title, so of course I'm doing information architectural work. But it was always more than that. That's just what they called us. And a lot of times, and most people seem to have that as their title, well, we didn't know what else to call ourselves, but that's what they called us. Was That's what HR told us. That's what the boss that hired us, many of us called us. And that's what we were doing. But we were also doing interaction design. We were doing interface design. We were doing all those things that I personally now refer to as the four pillars of UX, heuristics and 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 usability for one, information architecture, UX research, and interaction and interface design. Those were what I now call the four pillars of UX. I'm doing all of those things, and I'm doing things associated with the subsets of those four things. But again, no free-falling. By now, Jesse James Garrett's book is out. The Polar Bear book, which came out in about 97, 98, of course, that book is out. We have Richard Saul Worman books that are out there. We have the uh, different books by Alan Cooper starting to come on the market. There's a whole slew of books that are starting to be published associated with the discipline that we now know as user experience. But as I look at all these books, got to give a shout out to Nathan Shetroff too. Uh, that was one of the first books I bought about experience design. And that's what he called it. And, and yeah, it, it's important to know that while it wasn't called UX at large yet, and information architecture was probably the most dominant job title that I would see, there was already a group of people who were calling it experience design. It just didn't catch on, just for the record. But again, in 2005, Darren Hood is now a full-time information architect, falling in love with the discipline, changed my career trajectory completely because I love what I was doing. I love what I thought this had to offer, but the thing I'm trying to help us to note here, there's no free falling. There's no disruption. There's no confusion. There's no ambiguity in the discipline. Fast forward to 2010. And again, now, of course, now I'm just confident up the wazoo. I've now been doing UX for close to 15 years by this time, been doing it full-time for a good five. Um, about this time, it was it was sort of interesting because you didn't see anybody with senior in their title <laughs> in 2010. You just didn't see it. I know I didn't see it. Job postings, the places that I worked, you just didn't see it. It was really interesting uh, looking back on that, that you didn't see anything like that. But again, 
There's no real ambiguity. The ambiguity was starting to pop up in 2010 a little bit because now we're from 2000 to 2010, the vast majority of the UX-related jobs were, were in creative agencies, advertising firms. Some people would think of it that way, but there was that the, the creative agencies were embedded within the advertising firms. So you saw the information architects, but you also see, I mean, I I was looking for years. I mean, we're we're not just doing information architecture. Why is our title information architect if we're doing research, we're doing interaction design, we're doing interface design, we're doing all of these things. Why do you call us information architects? I think that this is a misrepresentation of who we are. And I went to HR at the at the agency that I was working at at the time. I went to my boss and everybody agreed with me that we should be called something else. And I made the proposal. I submitted the proposal that we be called UX architects. By now, I've, I've, I've come across the acronym UX. I thought that it was a good way to refer to us and what we were doing. I thought it was a great umbrella term. I actually told the story to somebody once and they, no, you didn't. And it's funny how people try to tell you what you didn't do when you were there. So fooey on them, <laughs> fooey on, on that. Uh, the person I had the conversation with knows that that I came to them and said this to them. So, so it was approved. Our titles were changed. I didn't even tell the people that I was working with that I had done this. We just did it. And, and next thing you know, everybody's title is UX architect. They didn't know that that was my doing, but... They they know even the people that was that were on my team at the time know that the team or that the change took place, I should say. So, 2010, we're UX architects. We've got UX in our title, and we were the only agency at the time that were doing that. And it, of course, it starts to spread. So, for whatever that's worth, I'm just telling the story. So now, I don't know if UX sort of sort of started to to cause the ambiguity to come into play. I, I'm not 100% sure, but you do start to see ambiguity in our ranks. About 2011, 2010, 2011, along in there. But also what happened, and I've talked about this before, around the same time, UX was starting to get popular. And there were a lot of articles that were being published touting it as a, an up-and-coming discipline. And there were people who didn't know how to describe who we were and what we were. And the, the corporations who previously were hiring the creative agencies to do the bulk of their UX work, the vast majority of corporations, started to see this as something that they wanted to invest in a little bit more from a standpoint that maybe we should start having these people in-house. And, and a few years prior to this, just a few years prior, the research by NASA and the research done by IBM started to become popular. You know, the old research where for every dollar you invest in UX, you get X in return. And so the corporations are thinking, okay, well, that's language I can understand. You're talking to me about ROI. You're talking to me about what we can expect to get 
for every dollar we invest in UX, we want our piece of that pie. So around 2010 to 2012, along in there, not only do a lot of corporations start to bring UX work in-house and start to build their own UX teams, but with all of this this huge rise in positions, Forbes and Forrester and a lot of other companies start doing all these articles about UX and its explosion and everybody wanting their piece of the pie, in conjunction with that is a boom in available positions or these open positions. So you have this such a um, an explosion in jobs, but you don't have people to to fill these jobs, but they're popping up everywhere. This is where the boot camps came in. The boot camps started running in about 2011. And because people, hey, we got to fill these jobs. We get we 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 have all these jobs. We don't have people to fill them. Somebody and and and, and I'm not blaming them for doing this. I thought it was a great uh what the word would be uh capitalism, a move of capitalism. For someone to see, this is something we can take advantage of if we can establish a means, because people aren't going to want to go back and get degrees for this, and people are going to need to fill these roles. They want to fill these roles quickly, and you don't have enough qualified people to fill these roles. So the boot camps came in and offered a six-month, for the most part, a six-month program where you could go through these programs and you could learn how to do this UX work in a very short period of time and for a fraction of the cost of what you'd have to pay to get a degree to do the same. Everybody thought it was a great idea. I thought it was a great idea when it first, when it first happened. And, but you got the explosion. You got all the, the, these jobs available everywhere. You've got these boot camps that are popping up, offering you these six month programs and then you've got all these people. Uh, not only do you see the the all these jobs popping up when you go into the job boards, but you also have salary reports. So people are finding out that all these jobs are available, but at the same time, they're seeing how much money can be made. The starting salaries for UX in the Midwest, the starting salary for a an entry level UX person was in the mid 70s. So roughly 73 to 78k a year USD was available for people in the Midwestern United States. Of course, it's going to be a little bit more on the East Coast, a little bit more on the West Coast, but this is entry level. So folks are all over this. But you also have the corporations who are offering all these positions and keep in mind, they didn't bother to educate themselves about UX. So that's a problem that we're, we're that is it's related to what it is that we're talking about today when it comes to the free falling. You've got the positions everywhere. You've got the the boot camps popping up. You've got the people who are starting to say, "Hey, I want I want to get in on that." Man, seventy five k for starters, sure. I'm like, is there something that I've done that I can make myself more marketable to get into this? So the free-falling began. The discipline, because you had people, corporations who don't know what UX is. You got people who are going after the roles. They don't know what UX is. You've got the boot camps that are starting to offer programs to teach people how to do something. When truth be told, they didn't know what UX was. They just threw together a curriculum 
they they just belched it out and start offering it. You have all of these entities all over the place that are starting to get involved with regard to a discipline that they really didn't spend any time understanding. By the time you get to 2015, now the gold rush is in full force. You've got people everywhere trying to build UX teams. You've got organizations that are building central UX teams, uh, big Fortune 50 companies. They've got UX this and UX that and all kind of UX stuff going on. Putting anybody into these roles. And, and, And it was about that time or just before 2015 that in my journey, I started coming across and defining what you've heard me talk about before, the posers, the retrofits, and the upstarts. The posers are the people who say that they're UXers, but they're not. The upstarts are the people who will get involved in UX, and they fast-track. So they're not really legit. They're fast-tracking who they are in the discipline and selling people on their authority and their, their acumen in the discipline, but they really don't have it. And then you've got the the retrofits, and this was happening a lot, especially in the organizations who needed people to fill these UX roles. We need somebody in these roles. We need somebody to do this work. And in their minds, it was just making things pretty and putting together interfaces anyway. They didn't understand the psychological component. They didn't understand the complexity of the work that was being done. And as long as you have a body, then that's a win for us. And so the retrofits were people who were BAs. Uh, people who were project managers, product owners, uh, graphic designers, scrum masters, anybody that was sitting around. You, all you had to do was say in a lot of organizations that you were interested in being a part of this UX team, and they would just throw you in there, and you didn't know anything. These are the retrofits. So you had the posers, the retrofits, and the upstarts. They're popping up everywhere. Now, mind you, you have the people who've already been doing the UX work for X number of years, And so now we have the beginning of our doom because it was a matter of time before we were going to get pushed out in favor of the posers, the retrofits, and the upstarts. And some people are going to be angry hearing me say this, but folks, this is what happened. This is what happened. So 2015, the gold rush is on, the posers and the retrofits and the upstarts are starting to ramp up. Their numbers are starting to increase. People are starting to lie their way into UX roles, and now the free fall is accelerating. It's accelerating. By 2020, the ambiguity that started in about 2011 has ramped up dramatically. It's all over the place. Organizations never bothered to get it, get an understanding about what UX was. They still didn't have time, and, and, and it's true enough, they don't, but They didn't understand a lot of the other disciplines either, not to the point where they could do the work, but they knew enough to trust the people that they hired to be in the roles. For some reason, that never clicked when it came to UX. So not only did they not understand UX, but they never bothered to trust the people that they put in these positions. That's that's just a hazard of the discipline that we have to come uh, to grips with. There's nothing that we can do about that. So ambiguity was happening the whirlwinds of ambiguity were getting stronger. They were getting bigger. They were getting greater. And they were starting to become quite dominant in UX circles. And now when you think about something like UX maturity, UX maturity, for the most part, was doomed because nobody was managing it. Uh, and, oh, and also a lot of these posers, retrofits, and upstarts, a lot of them were being hired to run 
the UX teams. So you have this 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 massive increase of people running the UX teams that actually were not qualified at all. This was starting to become a norm in most organizations, and that's in 2020. So now fast forward to today. Told you this is going to be relatively short in comparison to some of the other shows. UX has been redefined through the boot camps, through the posers, retrofits, and upstarts, through the people who wanted to lay claim to something in this discipline without actually becoming qualified. They're here. There's nothing we can do about it. <laughs> now, as far as we, you can't replace these people, and we're not saying that you have to. I'm just trying to tell the story and let you know where we are today so you can navigate this crazy space that we're in that we call UX now. It's been redefined. We've reached a day where UX maturity is so bad that doing actual UX work can actually cost you your job. You could do UX work and people will say, what is this? I expected something else. I expected something better. I expected something more. And they actually lean toward what the product folks are doing. Just make things pretty. Take orders. Do what we tell you. Matter of fact, we'll come up with all the ideas and you just go execute it. Folks, are, 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 are you're, this is a norm today. In UX spaces, in, in 2024, companies are posting for UX manager and UX director jobs, and they only want three years of, of experience. That is ludicrous. That's absolutely insane. But it's just beginning, and it's going to become even more the norm. People who just came into UX today can be a director two years from now, even though they are not really ready for it. And guess who's going to get shut out? The people who've been doing UX for 10, 15, 20 years are going to get shut out of these types of things. It, it, it's already happening. In 2024, people are receiving rejection notices saying that they're not a match for a job or or that we decide to go with someone else who's more aligned with the job posting. When you audited the job posting, you know that you're, I mean, a lot of people there, I'm there, you're there, a lot of you under the sound of my voice are there. You know that you're qualified, but they told you that you're not or that someone else is a better fit. It is more aligned with what we're looking for. That means that there was something that you were looking for that's not in the job posting because that just flat out isn't true. The discipline is upside down. The discipline is upside down. Now, people are saying, Darren, this really makes me feel bad. Okay, now I'm going to call for you to be more emotionally intelligent and throw that out. This is where we are. So everybody has to make a decision. Are you going to stay in the discipline? Some people do leave. The discipline. Some people are becoming product owners. Some people are already shifting into service design. Some people are going into CX. Some people are going into LX. Uh, it, because there's a lot of situations today, and some people say they, I, that they're glad to hear me talk about this because they thought they were losing their mind. And and then, you know, I'm glad to hear somebody else is actually talking about this because I didn't know what was going on. So it is happening. I'm, I'm not seeing things. No, you're not. But we do have to make decisions. So I encourage you, make a decision today. UX is not what it once was. Does that mean that it can't be restored? Yeah, it, it can be restored, but it's going to take a lot, and it's going to take a lot of people opting in and partnering, and, and it's going to take people waking up. When they see that the posers, the retrofits, the upstarts, the unqualified UX leaders are not actually bringing value and that there's some of us out here who actually can, some of them will wake up. But 
it's something that yeah, if you're going to stay in UX, you're going to have to choose to weather the storm. You're going to have to be bold. You're going to have to be courageous. I love what uh, Justin was talking about in the recent show. He started his own thing. That's a great alternative because now you're not having to deal with the toxicity because, yeah, all the stuff I just mentioned, it breeds toxicity that's off the charts. And, and, and you can't do real UX work and really thrive in an environment that's toxic. You can't thrive in an environment where people don't want to actually do and don't value UX work. He started his own thing and he's having a ball. And and, and then you get to talk to the boss of a company and you get to sell them and you get to help them understand. You get to personally step in and, and manage and cultivate UX maturity, which plays to the benefit of your freelance organization that you started. Works well. So something else for some folks to consider. So these things are real. You got to face it. It's real. So make a decision how you want to approach it. Make a decision what direction is best for you and do the right thing. But the truth of the matter is UX is sinister today, folks. It's no longer what it once was. And it's very rare to go to an organization where UX work is actually being valued. There are some. You can find them. The job search process is very taxing, is very, it's very draining, it's very painful, but know that that's the case. And remember, it's not about the hundred jobs you don't get, it's about the one you do. So get to applying, get to applying, lose that sense of entitlement and get to applying, get to work. And if you get to work and you keep pressing, you can find that satisfaction that comes along with doing real UX work when you bring value and when you drive wins for the users, for the business, for your organization, and for your team. So, sorry to have to share the bad news, but I'm not sorry because truth is a powerful thing. So let's ride there. That is all the time we have for today, folks. We will pick up with, I guess, what is now (laughs) number 64 (laughs) uh, today, next week. So until then, folks, this is Darren Hood signing off. Happy UXing, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.